Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion from our 2022 Student Anesthesia Conference in July. Uh, We're so excited to announce that several of the speakers gave us their permission to go ahead and post their recorded session so that those that were unable to attend would be able to benefit from the knowledge and wisdom that they had to pass on. We know it was beneficial to a lot of the people that were able to listen to it live, and we hope it'll be beneficial to you today. So for our last session of the day, I can't believe we're already here, but this is a presentation brought to you by John Lawrence. This is going to be a discussion about success in the clinical setting. So first, before we get into that, let's uh, hear from our sponsor. This session is brought to us by Wellspan Health. Join our team of over 20,000 strong working as one. Located in the heart of South Central Pennsylvania at Wellspan, you will join an innovative and well-respected medical group with a high volume of diverse cases. We offer competitive compensation and signing incentives up to $80,000. Whatever your career goals, expect to achieve them and many more with us at Wellspan Health. Now it is a privilege to introduce John Lawrence. I remember listening to his podcast when I was uh, going to CRNA school and even throughout. And so we appreciate him taking the time to do this discussion for us. John has his MSN uh, CRNA practices and anesthesia and is the SRNA clinical coordinator at a level one trauma center in New England. He is the producer, as I mentioned, of the podcast of Anesthesia Guidebook, the go-to guide for anesthesia providers who want to master their craft. It is our pleasure to welcome John on this pre-recorded video. All right, all right, all right. What is up, y'all? This is John Lawrence. Uh, coming to you with a talk on success in clinical. So thank you so much to Cole and Tanner from Corey Anesthesia for inviting me to give this talk to you today. I'm so bummed that I can't be with you in person. I've got a prior commitment on the day of your conference, but uh, this talk has been designed specifically for this uh, conference that you're in today. And uh, it looks like I might be the anchor presenter. So I don't know if they did that because I'm video and I'm not live and you can just check out. Uh, or if they're saving the best for last, <laughs> I, I know that's not the case. I've seen who you've been with today, uh, the other presenters today, and you've had an amazing lineup of folks. So, uh, I'm very honored to be with you today and to talk for a little bit on how to be successful in clinical. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to guess that you're just getting into clinical. I'm going to frame this to you as ICU nurses and, uh, SRNAs who are gearing up for anesthesia clinicals as SRNAs. And we're going to get right to it. So, uh, this is success in clinicals tips to help you survive the coming storm. And I am the producer of anesthesia guidebook. I'm also the SRNA clinical coordinator at Maine medical center. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, and then we can get into the content. So uh, I'm at Maine Med in Portland, Maine. We are a 637-bed level one trauma center. We also have Scarborough Surgery Center, which is an outpatient surgical center with 10 ORs, and an off-site MRI center, an off-site endoscopy center. So we run 42 ORs and 57 anesthetizing locations every day. We've got about 100 CRNAs, and uh, you can see our rotations here. We do 
general neuro PD, vascular thoracic, cardiac, OB, outpatient, and just a slew of out of OR um, locations like IR, where the referral center for all of Maine for acute strokes. Uh, so we do a lot of intravascular neurological procedures. Our SRNAs don't do any regional anesthesia at our location, so they've got to go elsewhere to CRNA-only sites typically to get regional experience. We take three primary SRNAs from the University of New England, which is the program right here in Portland, Maine. And the last couple of years, I think we're up to like 23, 24 SRNAs total from the last two classes uh, from UNE. And our structure includes a clinical coordinator, which I'm currently in that role. I have an assistant clinical coordinator who helps me out. And then we've got uh, amazing administrative support from our two administrative specialists within our department. So big hospital, lots of uh, interesting experience that folks don't get elsewhere. And what we do for our SRNAs is that the first couple of months, I schedule them with four to six core preceptors only. So they're going to get four preceptors, four or five preceptors from our uh, clinical staff of CRNAs. And then they'll also work with me as the clinical coordinator and our assistant clinical coordinator. So probably about six people total. And they work with that small team out of our group of 100 SRNAs for two months straight. And then I also give them about a half day orientation uh, to our facility, to our expectations, to how to be successful in clinical. We talk a little bit about their background as critical care nurses when they show up on the first day, what are their goals, all that kind of stuff. We run down everything. We, sh we show them where their lockers are, how to get changed out. We have a very kind of gentle uh, onboarding experience for SRNAs because I remember so much of what I do as a SRNA clinical coordinator, as a preceptor in the operating room, and as a communicator through conferences like this and as a podcast host is framed by my experience when I was an SRNA. So I remember how challenging it was, how, how mortifying, terrifying it was to show up at a clinical site that you've never been to before. And they're like, all right, OR2, you got cases today. Good luck. And so we try to give our SRNAs something a little bit more than that. We try to bring them on through an orientation process that helps them integrate into our community, integrate into our culture, and to know what the expectations are. Because I, one of the fundamental beliefs that I have about SRNAs, about you all, is that when you understand the expectations when you understand the assignment, you know how to hit those expectations or even exceed those expectations. And so we try to lay those out there. And another way that we do that, as you can see here on the slide, is that um, I've created a clinical guidelines document and also a clinical rotation goals document. So the guidelines are all about you know where to park, what the locker room door codes are, and te key telephone numbers, and what to expect for your clinical schedule and that kind of stuff. And then the clinical rotation goals, after a couple of years of doing this, I would get feedback from SRNA saying, you know, when I'm on pediatrics, I don't really know what cases I'm supposed to tick off. Um, so I, you know, created some goals and some documents in terms of like, you need to, you know, learn these skills. For instance, when you're on a thoracic, you know, thoracic uh, vascular rotation, you need to get competent with the fiber optic scope. You need to get competent with one lung ventilation. You need to understand pulmonary physiology, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then these are the kind of kind of cases that you need to do. You know, if you can hit a, a bunch of VATS cases, video assisted uh, thoracoscopy cases, of course, for lung resections. If you can get an esophagogastrectomy while you're in there, that would be great. So all of that is already preset in these documents that these SRNAs get before they show up, uh, which really helps people get off to a strong start. And then for our 
weekly for the first two months of their clinical rotations. Now, this is brand new SRNA. So you're showing up to clinical. We are your primary site for your first clinical sites. I uh, walk people through these weekly seminars, and we talk about all kinds of stuff. I normally pull in one of our staff CRNAs or myself uh, to give a 10 to 15 minute talk on one of these topics like airway and vent modes or neuromuscular blockers and reversal techniques. Emergence techniques is always a popular one. Like when do I shut the gas off? How do I wake these people up? And so we meet for two hours once a week with all of the SRNAs together. And we only talk for, you know, 15, 20 minutes on a clinical topic. And then the rest of the time is spent hearing their stories and, you know, decompressing from the previous week. What kind of stuff have you seen? What have you been learning? And I find that the SRNAs really enjoy getting that FaceTime with one another because you get to, you know, hear how other people are progressing and maybe where you need to work uh, a little bit um, for yourself in terms of how to move forward. So that's a little bit about our program at Maine Medical Center, what I do as a clinical coordinator. And uh, the whole the whole idea is to set these people up for success is I think when you have a, an environment that facilitates your success, it's much easier to be successful. So let's get into talking a little bit about clinical, right? This whole idea is how to be successful in clinical. So what is the goal of clinical education? Why do we do this? Why do we go to clinical? Why not just, you know, uh, read all the textbooks, take all the tests and get signed off? Well, clinical is where the rubber meets the road. Right? So the goal of clinical education is to support SRNAs in becoming competent CRNAs. Most people end right there, right? We're supposed to take SRNAs and make them good CRNAs. But I also believe that, you know, these folks need to be, you need to be fully integrated into the profession and motivated to be forces of positive change throughout your career. So that's the goal. It's not just about, can you intubate people? Can you wake people up on time? Can you get people from pre-op to pack you safely, comfortable in an efficient time frame? But it's also, do you understand what the whole profession is about? Do you know how to advocate for your profession? Do you know how to, uh, you know, navigate the clinical environment, the business environment of operating rooms, and how to be a source of positive change, how to be someone who people enjoy working with, and how to build a career that you can be really proud of, you know, 10, 15 years down the road. So let's talk about what you should know. What what should you know in terms of becoming a competent? And CRNA. Well, you should know what. You should know the what. This is the core information, the principles and facts. You learn this by studying. This is all about the didactic phase of your university program. You should also know the know why. So that's the situationally specific rationales for why you do certain things in the operating room. You learn this one by studying. So obviously, you know, there's a reason that, you know, from pharmacology that you give this medicine at this time and here's how it works and here's the mechanism of action and the duration and here's the reversal agent that, you know, and you put that into the clinical context, like you're going to use long acting paralytics for a laparoscopic case and you're going to reverse those at the end of the case. You understand the know why just by reading and also by discussing. So you talk with your clinical, uh, you talk with your professors and then your clinical preceptors about how to apply all that didactic information that know what into the clinical situation. And then you also need to come to know the know how, which is learned by doing. So this is the experiential practical knowledge. It's the application of the know what and the know why is the know how. 
So I love this quote from, uh, this is Twitter. Uh, this is where I found this quote. It's thrown out there a lot um, around the internet webs. But student, you do not study to pass the test. You study to prepare for the day when you are the only thing between a patient and the grave. And this was really the core, this speaks to the core motivation for me of, of why I became a CRNA. I was an outdoor educator, an outdoor guide for a long time. I was an EMT. I was teaching emergency, emergency medicine. And I fell in love with the idea that you could stand in the gap when it matters for a patient's life, that when someone's life hangs in the balance, that our skills and knowledge and attitude can come into play in that moment and make a difference in partnership with a whole team of people caring for those individuals uh, in terms of what their outcomes would be. So I, you know, keep this in mind as you move forward that it's not just about passing exams. It's not just about getting through anesthesia school. It's truly about those moments when it's 1030 at night on a Friday night. And even if you're not at a level one trauma center, you might be at a smaller, you know, rural community hospital and you get a patient who starts crashing on you. You need to know what to do in that moment so that you can stand in the gap when you're the only thing between a patient and the grave. So what's up? How do we create future CRNAs? I want to talk about in this talk on how to be successful in clinical, I want to frame this out with, you know, what are we doing? What's the whole, what's the whole concept? What are the, what are the contexts that we're working in? And so future CRNAs are, are a conglomeration of three things. It's the SRNA fundamentally. It's who you are as a trainee. And then the other things that shape that are what the program is and then our clinical preceptors. So those three things together create future CRNAs. And obviously, this talk that I'm giving you right now is all about how you can prepare, how you can be successful in clinical, but we also have to understand the context that your program has a huge role in shaping you, the quality of your program, uh, what, what kind of program you're, you're in, is it an integrated program, is it a front-loaded program, uh, is it mainly online program, there's all kinds of stuff about the program we're going to talk about here in a minute, and then your clinical preceptors, who are your preceptors, what kind of experience do they have? And then uh, fundamentally, who are you? What, what kind of experience are you bringing to bear? What's your attitude? What's your skill set? What's your knowledge base? How hard are you going to work? Those kind of things. So all three of these things shape future CRNAs. Uh, but for us, a huge piece of what I want to share with you today is the ownership, the extreme ownership that you need to take as an SRNA to build your future, to create your future. So what do we know about SRNAs? What do we know about you? What do we know about SRNAs? What do we know about trainees? Y'all have a wide variety of baseline experience. This is in life and professionally. So a new grad CRNA that I'm working with now that was one of my primary SRNAs, he was, I don't know, in his early 40s when he started anesthesia school. He had a lifetime as an uh, extreme mountaineering climbing guide. And he was, you know, gone for 30 days to 90 days at a time, leading these expeditions to South America and Denali and up Mount Rainier out West. And uh, once he and his wife started to have kids, she was like, you, you can't do this anymore. You need to shift gears and do something different. And so he, you know, went to nursing school and then was in anesthesia school. So this guy has a wealth of knowledge about how to be a professional, how to be someone who can lead other people, how to operate in extreme environments. Uh, but other people, you know, another primary student of mine recently, she was, I, I want to say like 26 when she graduated anesthesia school she shot through with, you know, she went to high school. She got out, worked as a CNA uh, on a, in an ICU. And while she was a CNA, she got her associate's degree in nursing. 
she was working as an ICU nurse by the time she was like 19 years old. And then while she was an associate nurse uh, working in the ICU, she picked up her BSN uh, while she was getting her, I think she got like 18 months experience as an ICU nurse, picked up her BSN. And she, she was very early, I don't know, 22 or something like that when she was, uh, the math's not checking out, I know, but she was super young when she went to anesthesia school and then got out uh, still like in her mid-20s as a CRNA. And so people would look at her and say, oh, you don't have the experience to be able to throw down and to, to do this. But again, if you put the time and energy and the work in, you can be successful no matter where you're coming in from. So let me cruise through some of this. So wide variety of baseline experience. You're motivated adult learners. You've accomplished a lot already, and you're used to being proficient in many domains. You're used to being a pro-level ICU nurse, but you're a novice in anesthesia. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. You have a limited understanding of what it means to be a CRNA. Now, this is no, no shade at you, but it's hard when you're first starting out to even understand what does a CRNA do? What is a CRNA supposed to know? Uh, I got an interesting story about that. When I was uh, a relatively new CRNA working at a hospital, the pat, one, there's this one PACU nurse that would you know, pay me no mind. She had no time for me. She would, she would interrupt me. She would talk over me. She would ignore me when I'm trying to give a patient handoff report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I already know. I already looked at your chart. And then this ICU nurse ended up going to anesthesia school. When she started to apply to anesthesia school, she got a little bit more friendly to me. Hey, John, I'm thinking about anesthesia school. You know, what do you think about this? Then when she got in, she got a little bit more friendly to me. And then when she started the program and she actually realized what CRNAs do, she actually came to me and apologized. She said, I had no idea what CRNAs do. I didn't know that you have to know everything that a physician anesthesiologist knows. She said, I thought they were pre-op nurses, they were PACU nurses, and they were anesthesia nurses. And that the physician anesthesiologist was kind of in charge of all of those people. She said, I had no idea that CRNAs are duly qualified uh, expert providers of anesthesia. And I'm sorry that I had that opinion of you for so long. And I'm like, welcome to clinical. Uh, she actually did do clinical with us, which was interesting. Uh, but anyway, uh, intelligence, drive, grit, skills, knowledge, experience, and attitude are all things that can change over time. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit too. And then you've got unique sources of pressure. So the university, your preceptors, you have financial strain, your family, your personal health and confidence, and your own knowledge gaps. These are all sources of pressure. So uh, today's SRNAs will be our future colleagues and care providers. I always try to emphasize this to my team of preceptors that you know the SRNAs that we're working with today we need to bring them up in a culture of support and respect because they will be our colleagues uh, down the road. You're going to be the one that cares for me. If I'm in a car wreck and I have to get intubated, you're going to be the people taking care of me. And so we need to train you up um, with that level of respect and professionalism. So what do we know about programs? Talked a little bit about where you're coming from as an SRNA, but what do we know about programs? There's a wide variety of quality and support for SRNAs. So Program quality can vary as well as the support and attitude they have towards SRNAs. They're motivated to train successful SRNAs. So programs are inherently motivated to maintain clinical sites and have people be successful on boards. If programs are not successful by their own measurements, they will not be programs for very long. They will go on probation by the Council on Accreditation, and they will lose their accreditation as, as programs. And universities who oversee programs don't like that. They want programs to be successful. So they have their own uh, kind of motivations here. Uh, there's variable structure and support provided for preceptors. So I get very little input from the local university in terms of how to 
run our clinical program as a clinical site. Very little input on that. Uh, other programs have a lot of support for preceptors and faculty and clinical, um, clinical coordinators. There's limited qu qualified faculty right now. So the shift to DNP, the shift to doctoral programs, I mean, that's been going on for you know, 15, 20 years. But as you all probably know, in January 2022, all programs now have to be doctorate programs. So uh, that really shrunk the qualified pool of faculty because you have to have a doctorate to be able to teach in an anesthesia program at this point. And the vast majority of CRNAs still do not have doctorates because, you know, for the last 30 years or so, we've been master prepared CRNAs. Program quality is something that can change over time. So just because a program has a reputation of being very high quality or maybe being average or low quality doesn't mean that that's what your experience is going to be. The quality can change over time based upon faculty turnover. And then programs have unique sources of pressure, including the university, the council on accreditation, a changing field, competing programs, and then your professors are people, right? So they've got their own professional and personal lives that they have to look after and take care of. And they're going to get overwhelmed at times. They're going to have stress at times that they have to deal with. And then lastly, what do we know about preceptors? So uh, your preceptors are clinical faculty who are highly motivated to excel. They want to do a good job as CRNAs. They want to be good CRNAs. They want to be good preceptors. Probably. <laughs> Uh, they usually have limited formal training and precepting. Think about this. As you go through your anesthesia program, wait for the talk on how to be a clinical preceptor. Uh, you're probably never going to get it. You're never going to have a talk that says, here's how you become a clinical educator. Literally, the talk we're in right now may be the closest thing that you're going to have on how to become a good preceptor. So programs are, are focused on training you to become a CRNA, not necessarily training you to become a clinical preceptor. Think back to nursing school. Did you ever have a class on being a nursing preceptor in nursing school? Usually not. So, you know, keep that in mind as you're working with these clinicians that, you know, just because you're a really good CRNA does not mean you're necessarily a good preceptor. You can be an expert level CRNA and be a pretty dismal preceptor because they're two different skill sets. There's a wide variety of experience and expertise and philosophies on teaching, which we're just talking about. And then every day we as clinical faculty move further away from our own training. We lose sight of and forget just how hard anesthesia school is and what the challenges are that we face. And then precepting is a skill that can be developed. Your clinical faculty can actually get better. I try to challenge CRNAs with this all the time. You can actually get better at precepting if you put the time and energy into it. And then your preceptors have unique sources of pressure as well. So they ultimately want to take really good care of the patients. They want to... Um, tailor their anesthesia to the surgeon's expectations. You know, they want to keep the surgeon happy. They need to keep the hospital and physician anesthesiologists happy and their expectations met in terms of moving cases through the OR, being on time and that kind of stuff. And then they also have pressure from, you know, their peers, other CRNAs and staff. They have their own personal knowledge gaps in clinical and teaching. I work with a lot of CRNAs who are nervous to precept SRNAs because, you know, they've moved pretty far away from when they pass boards and they may not remember all of the you know intricacies of the didactic knowledge and so they feel like what do i have to offer these srnas who are so smart on the book knowledge hopefully and i try to encourage them that it's about that know why right it's about that know how it's about the application of that didactic knowledge as preceptors it's not really your preceptor's job to explain all of the didactic information to you it's their job to tell you how to be a crna how to function as a crna how to incorporate the clinical skills and 
the whole practice of doing anesthesia and how to do that in an efficient way and in a way that makes sense. So it's taking that book knowledge and applying it to a context that makes sense. So keep that in mind. All right, let's talk about the psychology of crushing clinical. How do you succeed? Well, you need to have some framework around how uh, we progress as humans in skill progression and knowledge acquisition and how to move forward and, and basically getting your learn-ons. Let's talk about that for a little bit. So y'all are probably familiar with this. This is right out of you know nursing literature, medical literature, this whole paradigm of skill acquisition, the path towards expertise. So you, we begin as novices and then you progress to advanced beginner, to competency, to then becoming proficient, to then becoming a true expert in your field. And the three things that are involved in this process are, again, the skills, the knowledge, and the attitude uh, that shape us as becoming clinical experts. And I, I can't, so I put attitude at the bottom as the foundation because I can't emphasize enough that, you know, your program, your clinical experience are designed to give you the skills, to give you the opportunity to gain the skills and the knowledge to grow in your expertise. But you are the one that brings your attitude. You're the one that shapes your attitude towards uh, how you're going to interact with other people, how you're going to approach skill acquisition and knowledge acquisition. Your attitude is fundamentally important to your success in clinical. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But I just want to point that out now that attitude is so key. And it's something that you need to bring as an SRNA. So check this out. Bow, 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 bow. We got two triangles now. This is uh, the best I could do at a, at a picture of trying to explain the challenge that SRNAs go through when you become an expert in ICU nursing and then you start all over again as a novice in anesthesia. So it's literally like you've, you've worked really hard over your nursing career to obtain this expertise as a critical care nurse, and then you start all over at the bottom of this triangle as a novice in anesthesia. You won't fully appreciate what this feels like until you start clinical. You're going to feel like you're all thumbs. Like One of the reasons I have these weekly meetings for the first two months of clinical is just to help SRNAs process this, to help catch them when they're in those early weeks of clinical and they're so frustrated that they don't know what they're doing. They used to know what they're doing. You used to know how to you know, take a patient on CRT and eight drips and take them to CT on a road trip and get back and you know, recover a fresh heart or put someone on ECMO or whatever. And you get into anesthesia. And even though it might seem more simple than that, like you need to put this person to sleep for a lap coli, intubate them, paralyze them, manage their anesthetic and vent and all that kind of stuff. And then you need to wake them up on time and get them to pack you in a way that they're breathing, they're awake, they're comfortable, they're not nauseous. It seems it seems pretty simple in, in some regards. If it doesn't seem simple, that, that case, like a lap coli is about the easiest thing you can do in anesthesia. It will seem simple one day, but you get in there and you're going to feel like you're all thumbs. You're going to feel like you have no idea what you're doing. And it's one of the most frustrating things to go through. I had a professor who told me, John, that's why anesthesia school is three years long. It takes three full years and all of the clinical time in order for you to build back up that proficiency. And yeah, I don't even know if you're going to leave anesthesia school. You're, you're not really leaving anesthesia school as an expert, which I'm going to talk about um, towards the end of this talk. That, you know, Don't stop learning when you pass boards. It takes a long time to develop true expertise. And I'm going to talk about that here in a minute when we look at Anders Ericsson and his work on deliberate practice. 
but just know that this is coming. If you're not in clinical now, this is this is a part of the experience. You are going to feel like a novice because you are going to be a novice again. And it is one of the hardest transitions that SRNAs go through. Uh, you fall to the bottom rung of the totem pole in the periop environment. You're you used to be respected even by maybe the physician anesthesiologist. Think about the cardiac docs who would bring you patients or whatever, the cardiac CRNAs. You used to be trusted and expected as an IC nurse. And then suddenly when you're a first year SRNA, you lose all of that and you begin building that back up. All right, let's keep going. You're going to feel a little bit like this. <laughs> uh, the little baby mannequin trying to intubate the big mannequin. You will feel like this uh, in the OR. You're going to feel like everything is larger than life. I can remember picking up the laryngoscope in my right hand, going to intubate somebody and, and thinking, something doesn't feel right. Something, oh, right. Boom. Put it in my left hand. Now I'm ready to scissor the mouth open and, ex and intubate the patient. Uh, it takes a long time to get better at all the things that we do in anesthesia. Uh, but you might feel like this uh, early on. <laughs> Uh, I got another photo for you here. Uh, this is classic, right? So this is like a uh, stingray or something on this, on this woman's back. And, but SRNA is trying to intubate. And then your preceptor is always hanging all over you going, tell me what you see. <laughs> tell me your view. Tell me, walk me through. I can remember when I, when I graduated anesthesia school for the first, like probably few weeks as a, as a CRNA, I would go through intubation. Uh, and you know, I, I moved, I, like I, I showed up at a place as a CRNA, which is super helpful to go somewhere where I didn't train. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't take a job where you trained, but it's very interesting when you show up to a brand new place that you've never been before. And you're a CRNA, even though you're a new grad, people know you're a new grad, but there is a little bit more of a, like they don't, they haven't seen you progress. They haven't seen you make all the early mistakes that you make as a, as an IC, as a, as a first year SRNA. Uh, and so it's just a little bit different, but anyway, I can remember when I showed up to clinical and, uh, as a CRNA, so it's not clinical, it's your job. Uh, and I would, I would verbalize what I was seeing during intubation, you know, scissor in the mouth. I've got a great review of the epiglottis. I can see the molecula anchor in the molecula, grade one view of the cords, but the, and finally, one of the, I don't know, one of the physician anesthesiologists I was working with was just like, John, I don't care. <laughs> I know you can intubate. You don't need to say all that stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. I was just so used to the SRNA experience of trying to please my preceptors. All right. So let's talk about the psychology. Let's talk about the real psychology of how to be successful in clinical for a little bit. So Carol Dweck is a psychologist who studied children uh, primarily in her career in terms of how how people, how humans, and how kids grow and work through challenges, and she developed, uh, I, I would highly recommend this book. You can probably listen to it on audiobook, or it's a quick read. It's called Mindset, and she basically figured out that people approach problems with two basic mindsets: a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. In a fixed mindset, you see intelligence as static. So this is people who believe that your IQ is set. You take an IQ test, boom. You got a low IQ, you got a high IQ, you're either smart or you're not. You're super smart or you're not. You're gifted or you're not. You were in AP courses or you weren't. You struggled to get into school or you didn't, whatever. There's all of these kind of ways that we describe this. And people who operate from a fixed mindset who think, hey, I'm only so smart, well, you see challenges as something to probably avoid because you're, you might fail at those things. And obstacles, you tend to give up easy and effort is seen as fruitless because you're either smart enough to succeed in that or you're not. You hear this all the time from IC nurses and PACU nurses who go, 
you know, oh, I don't, I don't, didn't have the grades. I can't be a CRNA because I just wasn't that strong academically. Um, people with fixed mindset in turn tend to take criticism really poorly. Uh, they don't see criticism as fuel to improve or get better. Uh, it's just negative feedback. And they often feel threatened by the success of others. So fixed mindsets are, you know, they're basically in this kind of fear base, like I can't achieve, I can't grow, I can't succeed. And if you're coming into anesthesia school with a fixed mindset, it's going to be a lot harder for you. The other interesting thing is that, you know, you can embrace a growth mindset. And Dweck uh, explains as a psychologist that the IQ tests were never designed as a end-all be-all statement on your intelligence. They were designed as like a snapshot photo of your um, intellectual aptitude at that moment. So then to be able to design educational courses around you in order for you to get better, in order for you to grow your intellectual skills. So it's very interesting. Intelligence can be something that you actually develop over time. You can get smarter, not just more knowledgeable, but you can actually grow the skill sets to think more analytically, uh, think better, perform better, all that kind of stuff. So people who embrace a growth mindset, when they look at challenges, they're like, sweet, this is an opportunity to figure some stuff out. And if I fail, you know, if there's an obstacle, well, this is a growth opportunity. This is something that I'm probably not going to be good at at first because why would I be good at this? I've never done this. I'm, I'm, I'm increasing the level of challenge. I'm getting out of my comfort zone. So I'm probably not going to be good at this, but I'm going to work through it. And then effort is seen as something that you have to put in. You've got to put in a lot of work, a lot of hard work. You've got to try and over and over and over and over. And you will progress out of that novice area and move on to becoming, you know, advanced beginner and proficient and that kind of stuff. And then criticism, even though it can sting, it can hurt, especially if it's not delivered very well. Criticism, you know, from a growth mindset, you sift through and you figure out, well, what's the kernel of truth in here? If they're saying this, that they, they must be seeing something that I could probably improve upon. Let me see if I can figure out how to improve upon that. And then uh, when you look at the success of others, you don't go, oh gosh, they're so successful. Why should I even try? You go, whoa, they are killing it. How do they, how are they, why are they killing it? Can I, can I do the same thing that they're doing in order to improve my own skills and get better? So a growth mindset will totally change the way that you approach clinical, the way that you approach uh, didactic portion, the way that you approach the C exam and the NCE or board exam. And so if you want to hear more about that, uh, I've got a whole podcast with Jenny Fennell on how to embrace a growth mindset. And uh, it's part of the Thrive in Training series from Anesthesia Guidebooks. That's, I don't know, like a 10-episode series I did recently on basically how to thrive in training, how to figure out how to be successful all through training. So Jenny and I talked about growth mindset. We came back and talked about how to be successful in didactics. Uh, I'll show you all the other episodes in, in this series here in a minute. So a lot of good content on that. I want to tell you a little bit about grit real quick uh, as we round the corner towards home base here. So grit uh, is this concept that Angela Duckworth, another psychologist, came up with. This is her book uh, that you could you know, listen to an audiobook while you're driving to your commutes or whatever. And she's also, you know, most of these people have like a TED talk or something too. If you just want like the 15 minute cliff notes, I think she's got a couple of TED talks you could listen to. Uh, but grit in my definition is, is what you have when your passion fuels a perseverance that propels you through obstacles to achieve your goals. Uh, you may have heard my baby in the background. I got a 13 month old who's getting ready for bedtime, getting ready for nap time. Uh, but anyway, so grit is uh, what pulls you through challenges. Um, to, to push through those things to get to the point where you can achieve your goals. Grit can be learned. 
And as preceptors, we can help as preceptors, clinical faculty, and professors, we can help foster grit in our SRNAs. You can help foster grit in your other cohort SRNAs once you understand the concepts. So grit starts with developing an interest in the thing that you're doing. Are you fascinated by the work that you're doing? I mean, ICU nurses, PACU nurses, periop techs, anesthesia techs, uh, all kinds of EMTs, all kinds of people who have different opinions about becoming a CRNA. Some of them you can tell. They are truly fascinated. They are stoked about the possibility of becoming CRNAs. And I'm like, you're going to do you're going to do great because you have this burning passion, this curiosity, this interest in the work. Other people are looking at it as mm, uh, maybe a quick trip towards a high paycheck. And, you know, you're just, there's like a little bit of a hollow shellness to the way that they talk about their interest in anesthesia. And I worry about those people. I'm like, I, I usually try to spend some time and, you know, explain what we do and, and try to find something in it that they can actually be truly intrinsically motivated about beyond just the income. Because if you're, if you're doing this just for the income, you should definitely go do something else. Like there are things that will give you way more money, probably in an easier path uh, than becoming an anesthesia provider. So yes, the money's good, but boy, the money should not be your motivation. You need an interest that goes beyond the financial incentive. So uh, it, this also involves practice. So challenging, ex, uh, challenge exceeding skill kind of practice. It's a deliberate practice, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute. And then what's your purpose? Uh, so knowing that the work is connected to some sort of greater good, that the work that you're doing in clinical, in didactic training is connected to this path of putting you on a trajectory to where you want to get in your life. So not only are you stoked about the work, and you're going to put the time and energy into practice, but this is all about the purpose of getting you where you want to go. And then the hope that the juice is worth the squeeze. So it's believing the juice is worth the squeeze, that what you're going to get out of this is worth all the hard work that you're going to put into it. When you put all that together, you develop a grit factor, a grittiness that literally it's a stick that will pull you through the hard times when things are very difficult. So Angela Duckworth unpacks all of this uh, information in so many examples from West Point graduates in the military academies to business and tech and all kinds of stuff where people have applied grit, athletes, all that kind of stuff. So it's a great book. I would highly recommend that you check this out along in your journey on becoming an expert CRNA. And then next, uh, I mean, these are three heavy hitting uh, books that I'm sharing with you. So growth mindset, grit, and then uh, this content on deliberate practice from Anders Ericsson. So Ericsson is probably the best known um, psychologist on human performance and the development of expertise. He is the expert on expertise. And uh, this is the guy who did the research that Malcolm Gladwell took to coin the 10,000 hour rule of expertise that you need to put 10,000 hours of work into becoming an expertise. Well, Erickson's the guy who actually did the research um, that Gladwell cited. So um, Erickson looked at people like athletes, chess players, musicians, violinists, those kinds of folks, and figured out, you know, what are the things that really create mastery? How do people excel? How do people um, really become experts in their field? And what he realized was that it, it, it took substantial time to get there, but it wasn't just putting time in. It's not just like, I'm a, I've, you know, I could say it myself, I've played guitar for 15 years but I've probably played the same 12 chords for the last 15 years. I'm a terrible, like 
I can put, you know, I, I wouldn't even consider myself a musician, right? Like versus someone who has played guitar, who has practiced guitar for 15 years, they're going to be in a, an entirely different category uh, than what I would put myself in. So it's not just about the time in, but it's about this, the kind of practice that you put in. It's this deliberate practice. So this is about developing an accurate mental representation of what is the goal. So for you in clinical, you need to look at your preceptors. You need to think about what what is being a proficient CRNA look like? What is being a proficient nurse anesthesiologist look like? Or just anesthesiologist? What do the physician anesthesiologists do? What do the nurse anesthesiologists do? How can I move in uh, in a way forward that's going to get me to where those people are at. It's, it's understanding that gap between where you are and where you need to go and figuring that out along the way. So you need a mental representation of what that looks like. And then you need a specific plan for improvement. So if you're terrible at airway management, you need a very specific plan uh, based upon the, you know, the feedback that you get from a teacher or a coach, right? The reflection and concentration you put in after a clinical day. You need to think back on what worked today, what didn't work today. What are my preceptors telling me? And then you need to slowly build a specific plan for how to improve your skill sets. And then deliberate practice, you know, is a process that where you build sequentially on skills. So you should always be pushing out of your comfort zone. Uh, just as you're getting comfortable with a particular skill set, you need to push out of that and work on different things. So for instance, in airway, if you get really good at doing video laryngoscopy and intubating people with a McGrath or a CMAC or a GlideScope, you're good at that. Well, you need to put the McGrath down at some point and you need to develop direct laryngoscopy skills. It's critical as a, as an anesthesia provider that you understand how to do DL. If you're not good at DL, you're going to struggle when that video tool fails, whether there's blood in the airway, vomit in the airway, the battery dies, the screen breaks or whatever, or it's just not available. So, you know, you get, you're like, I'm pretty good at, at doing McGrath airways. Well, it's a different skill set to do DL. And if you get a DL, you need to practice with a McGrath. It's a different skill set too to do an around the corner intubation, how you move the scope, so or how you move the stylet in the, in the ET tube. And then this, of course, takes substantial time to develop the skill. And Erickson found that on average, it takes about you know ten thousand hours, you know eight to twelve thousand hours or so for people to truly develop expertise. And again, this is not just time on the job. So you look at these super experienced CRNAs that you might work with or physicians. You know they might have. 20, 30 years of experience, but if they've just been doing the same thing for 20 or 30 years, they may not have developed true expertise. They may have just been doing the same thing for all of that time. Think about the IC nurses you work with. Some of them are true masters at what they do. Other people have just been doing the same thing for 30 years and they're kind of stuck in their ways. So deliberate practice is about pushing out of that and truly continuing to develop skills over time. I want to share this with you um, as well. So one more kind of psychological concept uh, before we shift gears here. And this is from Mihai Six Cent Mihai is how you say that dude's name. He's another psychologist. And he talks about the concept of flow. This is near and dear to my heart as an outdoor educator because, you know, when you look at extreme sports and, and people pushing boundaries and getting out of their comfort zones, flow really comes into this. But flow can be a concept that's applied to all kinds of stuff. You could be sitting in a cubicle and be in a flow state, you know, working on computer code or whatever. Uh, so basically, if you look at the, the bottom left hand of this slide, you've got challenge on one axis and skill on the other. And, and quite simply, if your skill exceeds the challenge, you're likely going to get bored. If the challenge greatly exceeds your skill set, you're likely going to face anxiety. 
the point of all skill development is to have skills meet the challenge at hand so that you can be in a state of flow where you're cool, calm, collected, maybe, maybe aroused, but you're in control. If you look at this other, um, you know, uh, picture here. So you're at a state of arousal, you're a state of like, you're paying attention, uh, you're focused on the task at hand, but it, you're not, it's not so challenging that you're anxious or that you feel like you're, uh, out of your depth or in over your head or whatever. Uh, you feel like you're in control and you're in the state of flow. That state of flow is, um, synonymous with all kinds of like positive feelings. Like you feel stoked about the work you're doing. You get a lot of satisfaction from it. Gratification, grat, uh, gratification, gratification. I don't know. <laughs> I'm 42 minutes into this talk. Your brain's probably fried. It's towards the end of the day. Uh, let's wrap this up and we'll keep going. So the point of this uh, moment is to share with you that as you go through clinical, you need to constantly be building your skills because you're going to find challenges out there that are extremely high. At first, everything's super challenging. That's why it's so frustrating to be a novice again, because you thought you were highly skilled but you're, you're actually not highly skilled at anesthesia. So everything is challenging. Everything's anxiety provoking. And that's very frustrating to be in that position. So it takes time to build the skills. But what I want to tell you about is like, you're going to get good at 80% of what's out there in, in anesthesia land just by going through your training program. But you need to continue to push to be comfortable in that 20% of cases that are very, very difficult. So these are the crashing patients. These are the challenging hemodynamics. These are the tricky acid base, you know, septic patients who are trying to die on you. These are the hemorrhaging patients. These are the, you know, the stat C-section cases. Uh, these are the really challenging airway cases. You have to develop an extreme level of skill to be in a state of flow in those points of extreme challenge. And so many anesthesia providers, you think, man, all anesthesia providers, they, they are all so pro and expert at everything. They're probably not. They're probably like prone expert at 80% of what they see, you know, or 90% of what they do or, you know, but can you push to train for those, you know, five, 10%, 20% of cases that are, that are exceptionally challenging uh, and be ready to meet that challenge. So it takes us back to that tweet from the beginning of the talk where, you know, your goal is not just to pass the test. Your goal is not just to be able to do a lap coli and get them from pre-op to pack you comfortably your goal is to stand in the gap when a patient's trying to die on you and uh, come through for your patients in those moments, which is sick. So much. All right. So closing out here, uh, let's wrap this up with some best practices for preceptors, for SRNAs. Let's talk about getting asked questions in, in, you know, uh, in the clinical environment. Uh, and then we're out of here. So Tom Barabo is a guy who has been, um, epically important into the advancement of opioid-free anesthesia in the United States. Uh, I've got some podcasts with him if you want to go check him out or listen to him. He's also helped found the Society of Opioid-Free Anesthesia. And he did a survey of best practices for preceptors a few years ago and, and distilled this down to these things. So uh, think about this from clinical preceptors. You know, We should discuss the planning goals before the day starts with you as SRNAs. We should debrief privately at the end of the day, not in the OR, not in front of everyone else. We should provide you with autonomy, autonomy, and autonomy. The more you do things yourself, the more you're going to put the puzzle pieces together. We need to teach applicable real-world knowledge. And for senior SRNAs, we need to teach you the pearls, the advanced and alternative techniques, and integrate you into the field and community. We need to talk about finances and how to lead a successful life and all that kind of stuff. We should not create an atmosphere of fear and intimidation. 
We should not fail to understand that you are a highly motivated adult learner who wants to succeed. We should not gossip about students ever, anywhere. And we should not treat you worse than we would an employee. This fundamentally sums up the whole list. We should not treat you worse than an employee. If employees get breaks in the morning, you should get a break. If an employee gets a lunch break for 30 minutes, you should get a lunch break. Not, hey, go eat your lunch and look up this clinical question and get back to me by the end of lunch. No, like go eat lunch. If if employees get out on time, you should get on time out on time. I understand there's exceptional cases where you might stay late to learn something, and that's important. Like you often need to steer that ship, right? If we're gonna stay late to finish a case because this is a great learning opportunity then you need to understand that and go for that. And, uh, but that should be exceptional, right? And if that's happening frequently, then preceptors should find other ways to get you out some other day a little bit earlier so that your hours balance out. All right. So a little bit on precepting there. So uh, fundamentally, I believe that supportive precepting does not turn out weak SRNAs, which is this thing like in anesthesia land where people think, well, if I'm really stern and tough and rough on, on students, then they're going to be stronger SRNAs. And I don't agree with that any more than supportive parenting doesn't lead to weak kids. Uh, you can be a very supportive, loving parent and develop incredibly strong, incredibly, um, I don't know, well-adjusted children. Uh Token kid shot. <laughs> There's my little boy. Uh, 13 months old. He's been trying to take a nap this whole time I'm recording this talk for you. So if you've heard him in the background, I'm sorry about that. Uh, all right. So wrapping this up, best practices for SRNAs. Here's, here's the thing. I think uh, if, you did the, if you did the eight things on the slide, you're going to be um, – you're going to start off in a really good way. So be humble ask questions and seek feedback. Your preceptors are there to teach you. Uh, if you got to be humble in that you're starting at the bottom rung again, you're a novice again, uh, you're there to learn, you're there to soak up knowledge, you're there to see, this is the one period in your, in your career where you're going to see how to do anesthesia hundreds of different ways. That's going to become one of the biggest things that frustrates you about your clinical experience is that Every, SR, every CRNA you work with does things a little bit differently, and they all think that that is the way that you should do it. You should definitely do it like this. And then the next day you show up and you do it like that, and that CRNA goes, why would you ever do it like this? Who, who taught you how to do that? You should definitely not say the name. <laughs> you should just say, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, Other preceptors have shared this information with me, and how would you like me to do anesthesia today? Okay, I'm going to do anesthesia like our professors, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was however your preceptor wants you to do anesthesia that day, that is how you do anesthesia until it's the next day with a different preceptor. Then that's how you do anesthesia. doesn't matter what the books say. doesn't matter what your, pre, your professors say. As long as it's safe, go with the flow. Be humble. Ask questions. Seek feedback. Read and watch a video. You cannot just show up to clinical and expect to know what you need to know. Clinical is not where you learn the didactic information. You need to read and watch a video. There's tons of videos now. There's more support and education and content out there than ever before in terms of how to become a CRNA. Immerse yourself in content and read and study. Your skill set and knowledge base will progress uh, with lightning speed if you put the time in. So get comfortable being uncomfortable. We've talked a lot about this. You're a novice. You need to constantly be pushing your, your comfort zones to just get comfortable being uncomfortable. 
And then develop a mental model of who you want to be. Think about, again, what are the really proficient CRNAs? Uh, what do they like? What do they know? How do they carry themselves? How do, how do you get to where they are? What did they do to continue to learn beyond passing boards in order to become true experts? And then on the do nots, do not complain. It really just doesn't, doesn't help. If there's like an issue that needs to get ironed out, if there's an issue that needs to get it addressed, go through the appropriate channels. You could talk to your preceptor. You could talk to your clinical coordinator. You could talk to your professors. They're all there to help help you, but they're not there to like pave the road in front of you and just you know feed you, like spoon feed you stuff. Like you, you have to understand where you're going, what the expectation is, and then how to get there. Uh, generally, complaining about how hard it is, complaining about uh, staying late, complaining about you know individuals, which is the next point. Like never talk negatively about anyone else. Like don't, don't throw anybody under the bus. Don't talk crap about your professors, your program director, your program, clinical sites. This is the whole, the anesthesia community is a very small world. It is a hyper small world and CRNAs will gladly listen to you and go, Oh, wow. Interesting. Tell me more about that. She, she said, what? Wow. And you think that you're having this like personal connection with a CRNA and you're like spilling the beans about so-and-so when really that SRNA, that CRNA is just listening to you getting all of this dirt because you're spilling the beans and they're actually friends with that person. Or they're going to go to that person or they're going to write an email to that professor or they're going to send a text message to your program director and say exactly what you said. So just keep it buttoned up. Don't talk negatively about anybody. The anesthesia community is super small. Don't underestimate how hard it is. Anesthesia school is super, super hard. And then don't stop learning when you pass boards. Passing boards is a wonderful finish line. It's a wonderful you know, uh, culmination to all this hard work that you put in, but it, it is not the end. It is, it is actually a new beginning. It's when the starting gun goes off. It's the, it's the beginning of the next phase of your career. So don't stop learning when you pass all right, couple more things and then we're done. So how do you handle clinical questions? So, okay, here's the deal. Uh, this is called pimping for a lot of people. And the next slide, I'm going to talk about how we shouldn't call it that. But your preceptors are going to hammer you with questions throughout your entire program. So how do we, this is often like one of the, one of the key things that's anxiety provoking for SRNAs in the clinical environment. So how do we be successful in managing questions? So realize that they're going to start on day one. People will not be easy on you. You show up to, you know, I, I can't tell you how many SRNAs, first day of clinical, someone pulls open the top drawer of the anesthesia card and says, tell me everything you know about all of these medications. Now, is that like the best thing to do as a preceptor? Probably not, but you should be prepared for those kinds of questions. So they're going to start on day one. They're going to come at you when you least expect it, like when you're trying to intubate or whatever, and when you least desire it. There's two acceptable answers to clinical questions. One is the correct answer. You know the answer, you can share that answer. Or you should say, I don't know, but I will get back with you. So don't make up answers. Don't guess. Don't lie. Say, I don't know, but I'm going to get back with you. And then follow up with them and close that loop. Sometimes you got to realize that you just cannot win. Some preceptors will drill you with questions just to find the boundaries of your knowledge, to push into the zone of your ignorance and to make you feel crappy, and you may not be able to win. You may not be able to ever please those particular preceptors, and you're just trying to get through the day. And then realize that emotional intelligence is critical to navigating clinical. So how to respond to these questions, how to get through 
those challenging environments, when you have those kinds of preceptors who just want to drill you with questions. So uh, this has been called pimping um, in the past. It's described in the literature with that word uh, versus direct questioning or Socratic method. And basically, I just want to say this in, in, in this context, pimping is a gross term. It's got a terrible historical context and it shouldn't be used. The citation here, number 18, talks about that specifically in an anesthesia, I think it's anesthesia related, um, or it's just medical education, British Medical Journal of Medical Education. So I don't think that we should call it by that. Um, and as a teaching method, like the idea of this kind of direct questioning is just to hammer direct questions to make it super challenging and to basically put people down. I don't think that's the way that we should be teaching people. I think it's worthless. I think it's counterproductive. Now, asking questions, you know, in a psychologically safe environment with the intent of building up clinicians and, re, you know, uh, can be super helpful versus trying to reinforce some sort of like power hierarchy, like I'm the preceptor and you're the SRNA and I'm just going to put you down and make you feel stupid. Like that's that's silly. But we should be asking questions of you so that we can hear what you know. Like you need to get comfortable talking out loud about your knowledge base, talking about your care plans. That's a key skill is to be able to communicate what you want to do, how you want to do it. It's not just about, did you draft a great paper plan? Or do you have Vargo on your phone and you can look up the answers on Vargo? That's not going to cut it. You actually need to know the content, which is a lot of times why people are asking you questions. All right, so keep in mind, anesthesia school is easy. It's like riding a bike, except the bike is on fire and the ground is on fire and everything's on fire because you're in hell. <laughs> your path forward is going to be super challenging in anesthesia school. Um, clinical, like the exhaustion level takes up massively from the didactic phase to the clinical phase. It gets so much harder once you start clinical, but it is so worth it. Uh, I've got a ton of podcasts on clinical education from a conceptual standpoint. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe share this slide with your preceptors <laughs> on how to get better at being clinical educators. But honestly, there's a lot of stuff in there that can help you. You know, episode 33, for instance, we talk about flow. Uh, the concept that I mentioned briefly in this talk, we talk about the can of calm. Uh, 32, we go, you know, a deep dive into deliberate practice and how to develop that. And then I have a lot of podcasts on the clinical experience. So, so this is probably like going to be super helpful for you. Uh, everything from, you know, the clinical flow, how to get from pre-op through intubation, how to do an anesthesia machine check. Tons of stuff in here on clinical experience. And then this is the Thrive in Training series in particular. So uh, 74, episode 74 there, how to thrive in training, um, how to crush clinical is another talk on how to just how to be successful in clinical, which is in line with what we've been talking about today and a bunch of other stuff that you will find for there. And then lastly, I just want to, I just want to challenge you for three things. Uh, I want to challenge you to develop a growth mindset and a humble attitude. There's always going to be something to learn, even if it's how not to do something. If you're with a preceptor who you can't stand, you're like, "This is I'm having a horrible day." Well, then you're learning how not to be a preceptor that day, uh, which is which is worth something. I mean, take those really negative experiences and turn them into fuel for how you want to be in the future. And then I encourage you to think about, you know, develop a mental model of who you want to be. What kind of clinician do you want to be? What kind of CRNA do you want to be? What kind of leader in the healthcare sphere do you want to be? What kind of SRNA do you want to be? What kind of cohort person do you want to be? Once you're in, in, once you're in school, 
remember the competition's over. You've been admitted to school. Everyone's made it past that selection committee bar. And now it's time to collaborate with your classmates. The more you collaborate, the more you help other people, the better off all of you will be. And then lastly, write down your why and refer to it often. It's going to help you pull through to the end. So the why, again, is why you got into anesthesia school. Not like I had good grades and I crushed the interview, duh. Uh, The why is like, why are you doing this? Why do you want this? You need to spend some time thinking about that. And if you go through the Thriving Training series, I talk a lot more about how to develop your why and how to how to uh, get that ironed out so that you can fall back on that when times are hard, because times are going to be hard. And again, I just want to say thank you to Corey Anesthesia. Uh, you got all the references here. Um, this is going to be up. I can send this uh, out to Cantor and Toll as a, uh, excuse me, Tanner and Cole as a PDF so you have the references. And again, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak for uh, Corey Anesthesia. And I hope you've had a great day. I hope the conference has been super helpful. The fact that you've gone through today, you've put the time and energy in today, uh, just shows the kind of path that you're on, the trajectory that you're on. And I hope that you pull the best from today. I'd say write some notes down from what you learned today that you're going to look back on. Because next week, two weeks from now, six months from now, you're going to forget most of what you heard today. So take some night. Take some notes, put them into a note on your phone, and uh, I wish you the best. You got my contact info right there, john at anesthesiaguidebook.com. Drop me an email, shout me out on uh, Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, and uh, hope to run into you down the road. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this pre-recorded session from our 2022 student conference. For more about our speakers, please read their bio in the show notes, and we'll see you on the next episode.